If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History magazine, and welcome to April's podcast. It seems like we only started doing this podcast the other day, but actually history is running away from me. It was back in June last year that we launched our first one. And you can still listen to all the other podcasts that we've done by going to our website, which is www.bbchistorymagazine.com and clicking on the button that says podcast. While you're there, why not post on our forum and tell us what you'd like to hear on the podcast in the future. And you can also access back issues of the magazine via the website. But don't forget that our current issue, featuring pieces on all the topics we're about to discuss, is on sale right now in bookshops and newsagents. Now, I'm delighted that we have three very big names in the world of history gracing this month's podcast. Our first interviewee is Professor Lisa Jardine, who teaches Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary University of London, and her latest book considers the relationship between England and the Netherlands at the time of the Glorious Revolution in 1688. I caught up with her in the august surroundings of the Library of the Royal Society in London to find out more about it. The first thing I want to sort out is a bit of terminology. Now, what we're going to be talking about is the relationship between two nations in the 17th century primarily. Yeah. So should we be talking about England and Holland or Britain and the United Provinces? Okay. What, what are we okay. talking about here? Well, let's start with the easy one. Yeah. I decided to make it England yeah. because there is a whole other story to be told, particularly about Scotland, yeah. which I didn't have space to deal with. Relations between the Netherlands and Scotland in this period are completely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there are hints of it in my book with people like Alexander Bruce and Sir Robert Murray. Mm. But they are part of the London court, so that was fine. Yeah. So it has to be England. And yeah. actually, that caused a little bit of a flurry with my publisher, yeah. who would have preferred how Britain plundered Holland's glory. Yeah. And I said I'd be sued by the Scots, right. let alone the Irish and the Welsh, yeah. if I did that. So it's definitely England. Mm. Now, on the other side, as I say in my kind of preamble to the book, the general public calls this area Holland. It isn't Holland. It's the Netherlands or the Low Countries, and its boundaries alter even over the period that I'm talking about. Mm. And in the period I'm talking about, what we now call Belgium is part of this, of the so-called Netherlands, North and South. Most of what I deal with is what's called the United Provinces in the period, which is the Northern Netherlands, which I suppose corresponds roughly to what we call Holland today. Mm. But in the book, I've tended to say United Provinces, if I'm in the history of the period, Holland, if I'm being broad brush. Does that help? Yep, that's fine. Okay, I'll try and follow your lead on that, but I'm sure you'll pick me up if I say something wrong. Well, no, I mean, actually, let me say to you, Dave, it's interesting because it, it, right, behind the whole book lies an issue for me about What is a nation-state? Do we care? Is it any longer relevant? So this business about naming is absolutely critical. And if people get fussed about it, readers or interviewers or reviewers, then I'm very happy because getting fussed about our incapacity to be historically firm about borders and boundaries is what this book is about. Great. I'm glad I asked that question to start with. If I can just say what what I think the thesis that you're offering in your book is, in a nutshell, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong, what you're saying, I think, is that the Glorious Revolution of 1688 was effectively a Dutch invasion, but that everything went smoothly in 1688 because there had been several decades, possibly centuries, of Dutch and English 
close interlinking on several levels, and I think you say culturally, intellectually, dynastically and politically. Is that pretty much some things up? Yes, so that we were well and truly invaded in 1688, yeah. and only a nation which had so robustly taken to itself already so much that was Dutch mm. could have pretended otherwise. Okay. Now, that's interesting. That's the very first interesting thing, is this idea of an invasion in 1688. It's not something that we tend to talk about in Britain today, of seeing the Glorious Revolution as an invasion. Now, you say somewhere in your book that it was neither glorious nor a revolution. So what exactly happened in 1688 then? I suppose we have to say what happened in 1685. In 1685, Charles II died unexpectedly of complications after a major stroke, probably. Mm. And his brother, James, since Charles had no legitimate heirs, his brother, James, who was an out-Catholic and devout out-Catholic with a Catholic wife, came to the throne, which might just about have worked had he not quite dramatically begun to put in place measures for Catholics to take up key positions. And, for instance, the one that, since we're sitting in the Royal Society, mm. one remembers, tried to impose Catholic fellows on Cambridge colleges in key appointments in the universities, which had in their statutes that no one who was a Catholic since the Reformation could hold those posts. So yeah. James was pretty perverse about that. So by 87, there was a, a strong tide running against James, whose living heirs, Mary and Anne, were both Protestants mm. and both committed to Protestant rule in Britain. Yep. Leaving aside Anne, Mary was married to her cousin, William of Orange, himself a great defender of the Protestant faith. And it pretty clearly was William who began to push hardest, earliest, for his wife to make a bid to displace her father. Now, his reason was entirely military. Hmm. He was fighting expensive wars against the French and wanted both the military naval resources of Britain and the tax income that would allow him to mount bigger campaigns. So it was pretty... Plus, he wanted to be a king. The House of Orange were only minor royalty. Mm. But there's absolutely no doubt that what precipitated the invasion was the birth of a live male heir to James II and Mary of Modena mm. in August 1688. Mm. Turned the whole thing upside down. It displaced... William and Mary from the hereditary line. Okay. So the point is, though, that in 1688, when the Dutch invade, the English, to a certain extent, accept it because of these Ac close links. Accommodate them. Yeah. And so we need to look at these links, don't yeah. we? How far back are we talking for these links to develop? Well, the links go back a very long way. Hmm. What I trace most strongly is the effect of the 10-year exile of the royalists under the Commonwealth between... Well, actually, between the beginning of the Civil Wars in 1642 mm -hmm. and the return of the king in 1660. Yep. In that period, although, again, historians of the period have tended to trace what happened to those who went to France... France was a Catholic country... 
and observant Protestants tended to go to the Low Countries. And so you get Margaret and William Cavendish settled for ten years in the Rubens house in Antwerp. You get Alexander Bruce marrying a prominent family in The Hague and settling in The Hague. I mean, they're just the two that I take off the top of my head. I mean, you get real interweaving of the life histories of the British nobility, let's stick with the English nobility, and those are the Dutch. Okay, so in this mid-17th century period, what sort of things is England taking from Holland? What are we learning? What are we, what are okay. we getting? Art. Yep. I mean, quite, I think it's quite funny that all our great painters were Dutch. <laughs> Peter Lilly was yep. Dutch. Van Dyck was Dutch. Rubens was Dutch. Rembrandt was Dutch. Levens, who worked for a long time, was Dutch. I mean, you just can go on. Hanneman, who worked, was Dutch. Yep. So painting was Dutch. Yep. Music was Dutch. Yeah. What about gardening? Oh, gardening, yes. Right, so gardening is almost my favourite example mm. of exchange, of Anglo-Dutch exchange. And the reason it's almost my favourite example is it shows so beautifully how a single shared tradition can manifest itself dramatically differently depending on the geography and terrain of or the, the local conditions. Mm. So the Dutch developed gardening from the beginning of the 17th century as part of an iconography of the holding back of the waters of the sea. Imported into England very, very vigorously from very early on, we have no such problem, except actually as it happens in St James's Park. If you walk across the road from here to St James's Park, at the centre of St James's Park, the declivity which is now has the lake... Mm. That was introduced by Dutch landscape gardeners because it was so boggy they had to drain it. So there's a certain amount of drainage, but drainage is the issue in Holland, whereas when that tradition of landscape gardening comes over into England, mostly we don't need drainage. So Okay, so we've got gardening, we've got music, we've got art, we've got science. There's a lot going on in science, and your book goes into that in considerable detail. And we've got the dynastic links, which we talked about, which which enabled the whole glorious revolution to come to pass. And then we've got political. So what political sentiments are being transferred between the two? Taxation. The Dutch, as a nation, embraced per capita taxation as opposed to sort of taxation on what, you know, sort of value-added tax and customs taxes and so on, Mm. they embraced it remarkably early because a poll tax to allow dikes to be built was part and parcel of living in Holland. Mm. If you were going to keep from drowning, you were happy to give your however many hilders a year. And men like Sir George Downing, who are villains of many stories in English history, but uh, he was Dutch ambassador, English ambassador to The Hague, were very impressed with that form of even-handed taxation and argued very hard for its introduction in Britain. And by the time you get the Orange dynasty coming in, there's a lot of scope indeed for reform of taxation in Britain, which is based on the Dutch model. The Dutch system of elected representation has this irony that the United Provinces are a republic Mm. with a hereditary stadtholder who Mm. runs the troops and heads the government. That is a model which is almost overlaid on England after 1688, volume after volume written about the English Constitution and the Mm. Constitution is introduced by William and Mary. Most of that I found 
tedious and incomprehensible, and I'm not sure I believed it. What I do believe is that when John Locke writes about the Constitution, he's living in Holland, and when he comes back and publishes on the polity and the Constitution in England, it's a Dutch model Mm. that he has in his mind. So, in fact, when you think about it, we are curiously Dutch in the structure, given we're a monarchy, Mm. We have a curiously republican set of political institutions. Okay, so in 1688, then, what, so let's let's move on. It's a 1688 specifically. We've got these two nations. We've got England and we've got Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, the yes, United that's fine. And I think you say somewhere that the Glorious Revolution is more of a merger than anything else. Yes. So we've got these two countries then, which are, would you say they are the closest? countries could be in terms of cultural links and, and other links yes. at the time. And would you go so far as to say that, that that's the closest England's ever been to any other yes. country? Yes. Yeah. And I think I'm prepared to do one of those what if. Yeah. If William and Mary had had a live son, yeah. I think the countries might have officially formed a union. Really? It was tried twice before. Mm. I mean, there's the classic moment, which is that when Cromwell establishes the Commonwealth, he sends a delegation, or rather, maybe it's pre-Commonwealth, the Commonwealth sends a delegation to The Hague to invite the United Provinces to join them. Mm. And the Dutch refused. In 1688, the English and Dutch East India companies, who were financing the invasion Mm -hmm. between them, 1660, General Monk, coming back into England to re-establish the monarchy, that is on East India Company funding. Right. And that is another attempt to merge the East India Companies, who are big commercial rivals. Commercially, there was the idea that an Anglo-Dutch East India Company mm. would be unstoppable. Ironically, they didn't merge in 1660, and then again in 1688 they didn't merge. Mm. But on those three occasions, 1650, 16, I think it might be 51, 1660, and 1688... We get as close as we have ever got to a union with an adjacent territory. Going Dutch, How England Plundered Holland's Glory by Lisa Jardine is published now by HarperCollins. And her feature in the magazine this month focuses on the shared love of gardening between the two nations. It's a great read, I assure you, so do have a look. Now, moving slightly ahead in time, but not too far, I invited Professor Richard Holmes to join us in the BBC History magazine Time Machine. So let's find out which year this noted military historian would like to go back to and why. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. First of all, let me uh, welcome you into the BBC History magazine time machine. Well, tell me which year you'd like us to set the dial for. Yes, I, if you could set the dial to whisk me back to the early 18th century and specifically to the year 1704. 1704. We're set and ready to go. What are we going to do when we get back to 1704? What we're going to do is to find ourselves in a year which, if like me, you're a military historian, and if like me, you're interested in the British Army, is going to see John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, beat the French at, French at Blenheim. And there are lots of things about that year that I'd like to know more about, but it is, it is in one of those strange ways. It is a hinge of fate, that, that expression used by Winston Churchill. Mm. It's a hinge of fate because it's a year that does decide that whatever else happens in the war Spanish succession, the French are not going to get overall all control of Europe. Yeah. So what's happening in the War of the Spanish Succession so far? Well, the War of Spanish Succession, its name suggests, is about who's going to have the, the throne of Spain. Is it going to be the French claimant or the Austrian Holy Roman Empire claimant? And what's happened so far is that there's been an awful lot of shadow boxing, particularly up in the cockpit of Europe, up, up on the Flanders front, where the English, for such we must call them at the moment because there'd been no union with Scotland, the English and the Dutch had, had done reasonably well against the French, taking the, the occasional fortress here and there. But the French had, had opened up the game in a way which was for them very exciting, in a way which for the, for the Allies very, very depressing, by getting the Elector of Bavaria, uh, a chap called Maximilian Emmanuel, to come over to their side. So all of a sudden, the war had opened up into southern Germany, and it offered the enticing prospect, if you're French, and the depressing prospect, if you're allied, of a Franco-Bavarian thrust going all the way up the river Danube and taking Vienna, and therefore potentially ending the war. So we're going to try and land our time machine somewhere near Blenheim, I, I presume, in 1704, are we? Well, I'd, I'd like to start a bit earlier, actually. Okay. I'd, li- I'd like to get to try to, with some difficulty, to pilot our way into that mass of German states and principalities somewhere on Marlborough's line of march. Right. So I'd, I'd like to have a look at the Blenheim campaign in June, really, with Marlborough bringing the Scarlet Caterpillar, this, this great mass of marching regiments all the way down. He started from, from a place called Bedburg near Bonn and then marched through Germany, parallel with the Rhine, to, to finish up arriving in Bavaria. But, you know, the things that we, we want to know about is exactly how did he do it? How did he make the logistics work? How did his intelligence work? How did you, in an age of almost no maps, move a great big polyglot multinational army 400 miles across Europe? Those are the sorts of things that I'd like to know more about. Sure. And what, what, what sense do you get, um, before we've got in our time machine, what sense do you get of, of, of how he did it? I mean, Blenheim is deemed to be the big battle that Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, wins. Is he the Duke of Marlborough, by the way, in 1704? Yes, yes, he, yes, he is. Yeah, he, yeah. He'd become Duke of Marlborough. He'd, he'd winched his way steadily up the peerage. He'd become 
He'd become, first of all, a, a Scots peer. He'd worked for James, Duke of York, the future James II, and James had organised him a Scots, a Scots barony. When James came to the throne, this became an English barony. He then, in 1688, if you like, as a reward for his betrayal of James and supporting William, became Earl of Marlborough. And then Queen Anne, close family friend, very close to, to John Churchill's wife, Sarah, had made him a duke. Sarah wasn't terribly keen on it, actually. Mm. Sarah thought that being a peer was quite enough, and that the minute you became a duke, you'd be involved in you know, needless expense and keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> right. Or the Duke of Joneses. <laughs> but, but yes, he's a duke. He's, he, a duke. he's already Duke of Marlborough, and was just about, there was already whispering, or that hadn't yet happened, he's just about to become a prince of the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. And being a prince of the Holy Roman Empire is, is really quite a remarkable thing. He needed, obviously, to get the Queen's permission. And it was going to make him not simply the most senior Englishman of his own generation, but, but something of a, of a European figure. I mean, it gives him a, a seat on the diet of imperial princes. It gives him a bit of land in, in Germany. And although he didn't overdo the title when dealing with fellow Englishmen, it did make him Your Highness, something which he... Um, tend to emphasise when he was dealing with other, other Europeans. Yeah, OK. So, so, so if we did manage to, uh, to infiltrate this, uh, this, this wonderful scarlet uh, caterpillar that you've, that you've described, and, and we did manage to, uh, to get into the company of Marlborough, what sort of chap would he be? Well, what, what we'd find is somebody who... One of Marlborough's great assets, and it's an asset which actually we shouldn't undervalue, was that he was extraordinarily handsome. His Almost his first paid job had been as a toy boy to one of Charles II's mistresses, who gave him £4,000 for his trouble, right. which he then invested wisely. Right. But, but he was, he was good-looking and confident and polite. I mean, the, the diarist John Evelyn, who met Marlborough towards the end of Evelyn's life, said, I, I, you know, I, saw, I saw my lord of Marlborough wearing a very rich, very rich George, wearing, wearing his, the badge of his, his order. Um, a very rich George. And he remembered me and spoke to me, and I was very surprised. And, and that's one of the characteristics that Marlborough got. Not only did he look good, but he was also the sort of chap who'd remember that he'd met you before and come across a room and say how nice it was to see you. So I, it, I wouldn't flatter myself by imagining that he, he'd emerge from the throng and say, ah, Richard Owens, the military historian, very, very good for you to take the time off to come and see me. But he had that ability to persuade people that he remembered them, persuade people that he liked them. The soldiers called him Corporal John, which is an interesting nickname. I often think that you can judge a lot about generals by finding out what their nicknames were. Mm. And if you're going to be given a nickname, Corporal John's a bloody good name to have. I mean, Corporal, hugely important rank, that sort of link between the private soldiers who do the real business of battle and the NCO and the officer structure. Yeah. Corporal John, lovely name. Uh, and a good name for this man who who seemed to be, and maybe it was artifice, and I don't know, who seemed to be close to his men and seemed to understand them so well. Was was Marlborough the, the best general at the, at the time in, in Europe? Was I think Marlborough was not simply one of the best generals of the time, but arguably the best general that we've ever produced. Now, I say arguably because I had a, a debate with Juliet Barker and Charles Spencer mm. a year ago when we, we were each championing a particular hero, and Juliet was championing Henry V, and Charles was doing Marlborough, and I was doing Wellington, and happily I won. So, so I, th I think that there's a, a debate as to whether it ought to be Wellington or whether it ought to be Marlborough. Th these are figures on a world stage. Right. I mean, Marlborough's not simply a general. He's commander-in-chief of a mighty allied army. He's a political figure. 
nationally and internationally of huge significance. He's effectively joint head of the British government. Now, the last thing we want to do is to get into the morass of early 18th century politics, but his political ally and personal friend Sidney Godolphin was the equivalent of Prime Minister. But Godolphin and Marlborough between them were known as the duumvirs, and a duumvirate is a is a rule by two men. Yep. One thinks of you know Caesar being part of the original triumvirate. Well, the duumvirate is Marlborough and Godolphin. And he's Captain General of all Her Majesty's Armed Forces. He's Master General of the Ordnance, plenipotentiary with the United Provinces of Holland. I mean, he's just a, a man who does everything and does everything actually pretty well. And of course, not long after this, he's also amateur designer and architect because he's working on what he's going to put into Blenheim Palace. And he's a man of huge scope and huge scale. I mean, love him or hate him, he's got a finger in almost every pie. The, the upshot of, of Blenheim is, is that Marlborough wins. Um, but he was, he was what, he was 50-odd when he won that battle, wasn't yeah. he? And, he? and he died 20 years or so later in 1722. So yes. what was the upshot of Blenheim for Marlborough? Well, I mean, there, there are a number of... I mean, one of... Blenheim's important. He, he doesn't simply beat the French, but he captures a large amount of Tallard's men... The whole of the garrison, the excessively large garrison of Blenheim, got captured. And th- th- so this isn't just a defeat. The- these are those fine old regiments of the French line, Picardy and Navarre, getting captured and losing their colours. Mm. It's the most complete upset for Louis. And it means that whatever else happens in the war of Spanish succession, and, and eventually it- it's ended by a compromised peace, the great French design of destroying the empire and establishing French dominion over Europe is never going to happen. So from that point of view, the battle is is ultimately decisive. From Marlborough's point of view, it elevates him even further. He becomes a prince of the Holy Roman Empire. He gets given, controversially, land in the royal manor of Woodstock, in the very heart of England, on which he's going to build, build Blenheim Palace. And he really becomes a, a almost demi-royal figure. Now, very often the case that in the great events of history, we can, if we're perceptive, and I'm not sure that contemporaries can ever be expected to be that perceptive, but if you look at a great historical event, often you can see the, the seeds of decline. You can see the way that things are going to go on, not always in an optimistic way. And actually, Blenheim makes Marlborough a hero, but it increases the number of people that envy him. It encourages him, and he was always a man. He'd been, he'd grown up as the impecunious son of a West Country squire who'd backed the wrong side in the Civil War, and, and it encourages Marlborough's natural desire to make money by taking a percentage on this and a percentage on that and a percentage on the other. And his next battles, I mean, Ramillies is remarkable, and Oudenard is pretty good, and Malplaquet's a victory but only just. And none of his battles are ever quite as decisive as Blenheim. And what happens is that his political capital diminishes steadily and perceptibly after Blenheim, paralleled by his wife Sarah's relationship with with Anne getting worse and worse. And ultimately what happens is that Sarah and Anne split. Anne looks for other political advice. Marlborough's great ally, Godolphin, falls from power and, and then dies, and Marlborough finds himself being stripped of all his officers and, and living in exile on the continent. The, you know, the man who's won Blenheim and done everything, suddenly kicked out of his own country. The prospect of legal proceedings for graft 
being carried out had he stayed, and, and he's saved by the Hanoverian succession. And when George I comes to the throne, Morba comes back, and George, and George and Morba had a good understanding anyway, he said, you know, my, my Lord Duke, I hope that your troubles are now over. So he's restored with the accession of George I, but sadly never lived long to enjoy it. I mean, although he lives, he's hit by a succession of strokes. I mean, one of the poignant things about his correspondence, he often writes to and says, I, you know, I don't want any of this. I want to be a, a country gentleman with my, with my horses and my dogs and above all with you. I want to be shot of this, all this work and all this, all this diplomacy and all this fighting and come back and live quietly in my house with the people that I love most. And a series of strokes deprives him of that. So from one point of view, the story which climaxes at Blenheim does end, maybe not in tragedy, but it does end perhaps on a, on a dying note, does end maybe in pathos. Bridget, thanks very much for joining us in our time machine and telling us what we would see in 1704. It's, it's with regret that we'll have to turn the dial back, but thanks very much. You're most welcome. Richard Holmes's Marlborough, England's Fragile Genius, will be published shortly. Now, finally, I was lucky enough last month to be invited to the opening of a new exhibition on King Alfred at Winchester's recently opened Discovery Centre. The guest of honour there was none other than Michael Wood, the noted TV historian and indeed advisor to BBC History magazine. I collared him for five minutes to canvas his views on what he thought about the exhibition and on the Anglo-Saxon period in general. So here I am at Winchester Discovery Centre at the opening of the new Alfred exhibition. I'm here with Michael Wood, a, a noted Anglo-Saxon scholar. Michael, what do you think of the exhibition? It's great. It's yep. very exciting and long overdue because despite the BBC's Great Britons, Alfred is obviously not only the greatest Englishman but is also, I would say, the greatest Briton. Yep. What, what have they got in the exhibition that you particularly enjoy? Well, they've got some wonderful treasures. They've got the Alfred Jewel from the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. But what's really sensational is they've got a series of similar jewels, all of which may have been beautiful ornamental on the top of pointers for manuscripts, some of which have been found very recently by metal detectors, the most recent one last year, uh, and a stunning one from Basing in 1997, uh, one from Norway. There's a r- real cluster of them, and I think this is the first time ever that this whole series of jewels have all been shown together. There's um, a, a fabulous ivory from the Victorian and Al- uh, Victorian Albert Museum in London, which so beautifully displayed. You can see every detail of the gold on the back, and uh, it's just marvellous. And wonderful manuscripts, including the first full book in the English language, Alfred's translation of the, the pastoral care of Pope Gregory the Great, probably dating from about 890. It's been lent by the Bodleian Library in Oxford. It's probably one of the greatest treasures in the whole of Britain. Sure. And, um, and there it is. I have a fond memory of it myself because... Uh, uh, I was a graduate student in, in Oxford studying the Alfred period, especially his grandsons. In my first month as a student, the librarian at the Bodleian got this manuscript out and sat with me with the manuscript one kind of night, and uh, I can still remember the kind of spine-tingling feeling of actually turning the, the vellum pages of a book that, you know, Alfred had probably held himself. Fantastic. You, you are, um, you, you can see, I can see from talking to you now, that you are really um, fascinated and enjoy studying the Anglo-Saxon period. What is it about the, the Anglo-Saxons that, that so, so infuses you? 
well, I think it's one of the most exciting periods in our history, you know. Uh, uh, and, you know, I love the Tudors, but I've had enough of the Tudors, really. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, it's got everything, really. And I sometimes think that, uh, you know, ages of iron are more interesting than ages of gold, you know, an age where everything gets kind of broken up and destroyed, the Viking invasions, uh, internecine struggles between kingdoms, and people like Alfred uh, fighting against all the odds are trying to build things up from the very bottom. You know, it's easy to forget Alfred was a, uh, not the saint-like educator of the Victorian tradition. He, he's a, a battle winner. You know, 30 years of his life was spent fighting. He, he f- had to fight a guerrilla warfare at one stage against the, the Vikings. Uh, everything that he did uh, in terms of culture uh, and administration was on the top of having fought almost incessant wars, sometimes very brutal uh, and cruel wars. Mm. That, to me, is a very powerful and moving story. You know, people have to build things up from the very basics, even literacy. Alfred, in the preface to this book, says nobody can read Latin anymore, and Latin's the language of civilization in Europe. Therefore, we're going to try and translate the key books into English so that people can read it. You know, this is the situation we've got ourselves into. Mm. I mean, a historian in the 12th century said it's laughable in our time, you know, but they had to do it in their time. So I think these books, of Alfred's translations, are great memorials to that phase of, of culture in which, after all, the English state was created. You know, it's very easy to forget when you talk about why is this period interesting. The English state, the kingdom of all the English, was a kind of dream of Alfred and was created by his grandson Athelstan. And that is the state in which we still live today. Uh, the Union of 1707 added to that. We may be seeing that union kind of going away. Sure. In the, but, but the English state was created by these guys over three generations as a kind of family plan. And uh, it's the England that Alfred dreamed. So in terms of culture, in terms of warfare, in terms of politics, in terms of the history of Britain, it's a fantastically interesting period. Racial identities and cultural identities of the Scots and the uh, and the Welsh also become clear at this time. You know, first uses of the Scots in the way that we use that term today are uh, from 30 years after Alfred's time. So it's an absolutely formative period in the history of Britain. And it's it's singularly appropriate they've got the exhibition here in Winchester on Alfred because I think in the uh, in the talks we've just had it, they said that Alfred is only actually mentioned once uh, in in reference to Winchester, but he was he was supposedly buried here, wasn't he? Um, he was certainly buried here, yeah. There's no question about that. And also the members of his family and his son and his wife. We, you talk about a mention of Alfred in a, in a primary text, yeah. But Winchester was the key centre of the West Saxon kingdom, which Alfred was the king. And the accident of survival of the sources doesn't mean anything, really. You know, the fact is it was the chief city of the West Saxon kingdom and the West Saxon kingdom became the root of the English kingdom. So Winchester was their, their key place. Uh, Winchester is replanned in Alfred's day within the walls of the Roman city with a completely new layout with thousands and thousands of tons of flints laid, creating new streets. You know, it's, it's a planned rebuilding of a Roman town for the new age. You know, and they did this with about 20 or 30 other towns in southern England, you know, all of them as centres of defence, but which would metamorphose into centres of trade, mints and so on. You know. So it's an incredibly far-sighted vision of how uh, 
uh, they were going to make the kingdom work and survive. And this this exhibition, it, Alfred would probably have enjoyed this, wouldn't it? Because it's it held in a, a library, a centre of learning, and I think the exhibition is all about Alfred and his love of wisdom and learning. It's about learning, you know, and this is the new centre here in Winchester, and it's a public library open to everybody, and, and you know, one of Alfred's key things was that, you know, learning should be accessible. Obviously, they weren't going to, they weren't going to educate the peasantry in, in his day, but learning should still be accessible, not just to the aristocracy. And that's why he does the translations, and that's what makes him the great. He's the only figure in British history who is the great, or in English history, who is the great. And the reason why he is, is that kind of vision of what society could be. I mean, in our terms, obviously, a lot of these guys in the Middle Ages, are, uh, there are many aspects of them which are a bit frightening to us today. You know, this combination of extreme re- religiosity and military hardness you know they kill their prisoners at the drop of a hat if they had to you know, there's no messing about with these people you know but there is a humanity there is a kind of their christian religion they gave them a sense of charity and compassion you know their f- legislation for the poor and all the law codes is, is big you know they they weren't just war leaders they had a vision that's what singles him out as a really great figure and you have to remember he was illiterate possibly until adulthood maybe even till middle age certainly he couldn't read read or write anything until he was in his teens he talks about the discovery of being able to read latin first on saint martin's day in 887 you know so he's nearly 40 when he first manages to construe sentences in latin this is a guy who painfully in middle age and adulthood acquired literacy and learning but saw the value of it loved it and followed it. So, a great exhibition for a great figure. You've just come back from India with your uh, last series. Are you going to be going back to the Anglo-Saxons at any point soon? I hope so. The first films I ever made for television were about the Anglo-Saxons, and they were really made with two men and a dog, except we couldn't afford the dog. (laughs) uh, I'd really like to do a series of biographies of the Anglo-Saxon kings. Yeah, I'm still working on on a biography of Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, but that's a long time coming, you know. But I'd love to do some more films, yeah. And I'm hoping to do a series on uh, the documentary sources and archives of British history, centred in one place over the whole of British history. Fantastic. To show everything from farming to social history to everything, but using the raw materials, whether it's court rolls or family photos or from the year dot to now, you know. So um, various projects back in Britain, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Michael. The exhibition, Alfred the Great, Warfare, Wealth and Wisdom, is still on at Winchester's Discovery Centre until 27 April this year. And you can find out more about that by visiting the website, which is www.3.hance.gov.uk forward slash alfred.htm. So that's your lot for this month. I hope you enjoyed listening. Remember that BBC History magazine is on sale in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60. And the April issue is in the shops from Tuesday the 25th of March. If you can't get to the shops, then you can, of course, subscribe. UK podcast listeners can get a special rate of just £16.20 every six issues. And that's 25% off the cover price. Uh, You can order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine quoting pod 07 or you can call our hotline on 0844-844-0250 so that's that thanks again for listening and i hope you'll tune in again next month a collision between a chinese jet and an american spy plane he came and rammed into our left wing with relations increasingly strained what are the chances of things spinning out of control the western world was asleep 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.